If you're armed at the Glenmont Metro, please shoot me. Make it a headshot. I'm shooting the temple, aiming slightly downward. I need the bullet to travel the shortest possible distance through my brain before it hits my hippocampus. If I'm lucky, the sensation of the gunshot ripping through my skull will only last a few decades. As awful as this sounds, you'll be doing me an enormous favor. Death by a headshot, as soon as possible, is vastly better than the alternative. My ordeal started over 10,000 years ago, at 10.15 this morning. I earn extra money by participating in drug trials. I'm a so-called healthy subject who takes experimental drugs to help assess side effects. Once, it was a kidney drug. A few times, it's been something for blood pressure or cholesterol. This morning, they told me the drug I took was a psychoactive substance intended to accelerate brain function. None of the drugs I tested so far have ever done anything for me in the recreational sense. In other words, none of the drugs I've tested have given me a killer buzz or mellowed me out or anything. Maybe I've always ended up in the placebo group, but nothing I've tested has affected me at all. Today's drug is different. That shit worked. They gave me a pill at 10.15 and told me to hang out in the waiting room until they called me back for some tests. Only about 30 minutes the research assistant told me. I flopped under the waiting room couch and read a few articles from a copy of Psychology Today that was sitting on the coffee table. They hadn't called me back when I finished the Psychology Today, so I picked up U.S. News and read it cover to cover. Then I read an old Scientific American. What was taking them so long? I sluggishly turned my head to look at the wall clock. It was only 10.23 a.m., I had read all three magazines in eight minutes. I remember thinking this was going to be a long day. And I was right. The waiting room had a little bookshelf with some used hardcovers on it. When I stood up to walk to the bookshelf, it felt like my legs barely worked. It's not that they were weak, that they were just slow. It took a full minute just to stand up off the couch and another minute to take two steps to the bookcase. I scanned the old books on the shelf, picked out a copy of Moby Dick. My arms had the same problems as my legs, just reaching one foot in front of me to grab the book took a long time. I actually got bored just waiting for my hand to reach the spine of the book. I slogged back to the couch and collapsed onto it in a slow-motion fall that reminded me of the low-gravity hops of astronauts on the moon. I opened Moby Dick, slowly, and began reading. I started with the Call Me Ishmael, and got as far as Ahab throwing his pipe into the sea, which was all the way to friggin' chapter 30, before they called me back. How are you feeling? The research assistant asked me. I feel... slow, I said. Actually, it's the other way around. Everything seems slow because you're so fast. My legs, my arms, are moving in slow motion. Your body seems like it's moving slowly because your brain is fast. Your brain is running 10 or 20 times faster than normal. You're thinking and perceiving reality at an accelerated pace, but your body is still constrained by the laws of biomechanics. Frankly, you're moving much faster than a normal person, she pants in mind a jogging motion, but your brain is running so much faster right now that even your fast walk seems very slow to you. I thought about my slow motion flop onto the waiting room couch. Even if my muscles had slowed down, my body would still react to gravity the same way. But in the waiting room, I even fell in slow motion. Slow muscles couldn't explain why gravity seemed weaker. My brain was going to warp ten. That's how I managed to read three magazines and the first thirty chapters of Moby Dick in fifteen minutes. They ran a series of tests on me. 
Physical tests were fun. They made me juggle three balls, then four, then six. I had no problem keeping the balls in the air because they seemed to be moving so slowly. It was boring, frankly, waiting for each ball to move through its arc so I could catch it with my slow-motion hands and toss it back into the air. I threw Cheerios in the air and I caught them with chopsticks. They dropped a handful of coins and I counted the total value before they hit the ground. The cognitive tests were less fun, but very illuminating. Finishing a 50-word speech, three seconds, solve an intricate maze drawn into a poster-sized paper, two seconds. View a slideshow projected at 10 images per second and answer detailed questions about what I saw. 95% correct. They told me I measured over 250 on the NOP scale. Apparently that's deep into the subhuman range of thinking speeds. Then they sent me home. It'll wear off in a few hours, they said. Which will seem like days to you. Try to use the residual effects to get some work done. Catch up on work emails while you're still in the high speed mode. The ride home was... horrible. It was only three metro stops, and in real world time it only took about... 35 minutes, but in my drug-accelerated hyper-time, it felt like days. Days. Just walking out of the medical research suite to the elevator seemed like it took an hour. I sprinted out of the office, willing my legs to push me faster, but the laws of biomechanics held me prisoner. As accelerated as my brain was, I couldn't do anything to make my legs work faster. The huge disconnect between my body and mind made it extremely difficult to judge and how and when to slow down, turn, or rotate my body. Even though I could see the wall coming at me, I couldn't make my finger outstretched to hit the elevator button move away fast enough and I jammed it against the wall. Hard. The pain was intense. If my brain had been running at regular speed, it probably would have heard for 30 seconds or so, but in my accelerated state, the intense pain seemed to last for half an hour. 45 minutes, maybe. The elevator ride was horrible. It felt like I spent four or five hours just descending seven floors, with nothing to look at but the interior of the elevator car. I sprinted to the metro station. I have to admit, this part was almost fun. Even though my body moved at what seemed to me super slow speed, I could still carefully choose how and where to place my feet, swing my arms, turn my torso. It only took a block or two to getting used to having a brain that ran two dozen times faster than my body. Then I basically sprint danced the rest of the way, twisting and juking between people on the sidewalk and dodging moving cars with inches, aka minutes, of clearance. I spent an hour in my time frame, descending into the subway and running to the platform. Endless tedium, waiting the six minutes for the red line train to arrive. Although there was more to look at on the metro platform than inside the elevator, it was still intensely boring. Should have stolen that copy of Moby Dick. The red line train roared into the station in slow motion. The normally high-pitched squeal of its brake was frequency shifted by my high-speed mind to a long, low tone like a monotone tuba solo. It wasn't just the squealing subway train that was three octaves lower than normal. All sound was slowed to the point of near inaudibility. Voices were gone, shifted below the threshold frequency of my hearing. I did manage to hear a screaming baby on my subway car. Her shrieks slowed down to sound like whale songs. Sharp sounds like car horns and trucks bouncing over potholes were low, muddied roars like distant thunder. Back at the research offices, I could still hear and communicate with the research staff, but now verbal communication with anyone would be impossible. The effects of the drug were still intensifying. I spent what seemed like days on that fucking red line train. Days listening to the whale song of the screaming baby and the tuba solo of the brakes. Where ordinary voices were frequency shifted out of my audio range, smells didn't seem to be effective. I never became nose-blind to the body odor, the stench of the train's brakes, the melange of farts and other smells wafting through the metro car. I finally 
got back to my apartment, sprinting through my open door and into the hall at full speed. It was like a slow, relaxing drift down a lazy river. I was relieved to be home. At least I had stuff I could do there. I picked up the book I was reading, A Hundred Years of Solitude, and finished it. Despite turning the pages so quickly that I tore many of them, it seemed like most of the time I spent finishing the book was spent on page turning and not actually reading. Three minutes had passed since I got home. I tried surfing the internet. My god, it takes a long time for computers to boot these days. But it was too frustratingly slow. Hours, seemingly, to load each new page and a fraction of a second to read it. A hundred articles in my news feed read and just three more minutes done. I dipped into my pile of yet-to-be-read books and finished two more. Four more minutes had passed. I decided to try and sleep off the remaining effects of the drug. Unfortunately, whatever part of my brain is responsible for perception, the part that's been accelerated to hyperspeeds by the drug, isn't the same as the part that governs sleep. Despite being awake for what I perceived as days, my physical brain still thought it was 1.25pm. It was not ready to sleep. Nevertheless, I tried to sleep. I walked to my bedroom, a slow 45-minute drift through my apartment, and flung myself into bed, lazily falling like a feather onto the mattress. I closed my eyes and lay there for hours and hours, ten minutes of reality time, before giving up. Sleep would not come. I was facing what was going to feel like days or maybe even weeks of being trapped in a slow-motion prison. So I took an Ambien. The sensation of the pill and the splash of water I used to swallow it sliding my throat was sickening. A lump that blocked my breathing moving like a slug down my esophagus. I read a book. Ten minutes had passed. I read another. Eighteen minutes since I took the Ambien. I threw the book across the room in disgust at my situation. The book slowly pirouetted and spun through the air like a leaf blowing in the breeze. It hit the wall with a long, faint rumble. The only sound I'd heard for what seemed like hours. Then drifted to the floor like a flip-flop sinking in a swimming pool. The force of gravity hadn't changed since I took the pill. The laws of physics were the same. It was just my perception of time that had gone wackadoo. This meant I could use the speed things seemed to fall as as a way of judging the effects of the drug. Based on how long it took the book to drift to the floor, I estimated the effects of the drug were still intensifying. I read a magazine. I turned on the television. I clearly saw each frame of video like I was watching a slideshow. Frustrated, I turned it off. I read some more. The first two books of Churchill's A History of English-Speaking Peoples. Not exactly a light read, and frankly, I hated it. But given the hours of tedium it would take to get to another book off my bookshelf, just sitting on the couch and reading Churchill was better. Or at least less worse. It had now been 30 Five minutes since I took the ambient. I lay down on the couch, closed my eyes. Time passed. I inhaled an hours-long process. Time passed. I exhaled for more hours. Sleep would not come. I needed a new plan. I decided to go back to the offices where they gave me the drug. Maybe they would have something that could counteract the effects, or at least something to knock me out until it wore off. I exited my apartment as fast as possible, taking hours in my time frame to do so. I didn't even bother locking the door. It would have taken too long. Down the stairs, it's faster than the elevator if you run, through the lobby, out the front door, and onto the street. These few things felt like a long day at the office. Sprinting down the street, dancing and weaving between pedestrians with what must have looked to them superhuman dexterity, down the first flight of stairs at the metro, across the landing, another hour, then on to the second flight of stairs. That's when the Ambien hit me. The Ambien didn't make me sleepy, not at all. 
Instead, it must have had a severe cross-reaction with the experimental drug I took this morning. I was bounding down the second flight of stairs, moving in slow motion, but still making perceptible progress, and then wham! Everything stopped. The dull roar of the street and metro noise ceased, replaced by the most perfect silence I've ever experienced. My downwards motion seemed to completely freeze. Before the ambient kicked in, my perception of time was maybe a few hundred times slower than real time. After the ambient took effect, time moved thousands of times slower. Every second seemed like days to me. Even just moving my eyes to focus on a new point was like an impossibly slow scroll across my visual feed. Over the course of the afternoon, I learned how to walk, run, and jump when my mind ran hundreds of times faster than my body. But with another four or five orders of magnitude of slowdown caused by the ambient, body control was almost impossible. I fell on the stairs. Even though I was all but frozen in mid-step, controlling my muscles was impossible. I commanded my foot forward for hours, then backwards for hours more when it seemed like I would miss the next step. Hours, attempting to adjust the angle of my ankle, then readjusting it when it felt wrong. Despite these efforts, I rolled my ankle on the next step. The pain wasn't at all mitigated by the slowness. Hours of increasing strain on my bent ankle. The nerve signals that sent pain into the brain must work differently than the nerves in my ear. Sonic energy was spread out over time, diluted until it was imperceptible. Pain flowed into my brain, undiluted by the change in my perception of time. Hours and hours of increasing weight on my turned ankle turned into hours of increasing pain upon increasing pain. I pitched forwards, my high-speed mind completely unable to control my low-speed body. I drifted downward for days, managing to rotate my torso enough to keep my head from impacting the ground first. I eventually landed on my right shoulder. At first, the impact wasn't even noticeable. And then I felt a slight pressure in my shoulder as it came in contact with the ground. The pressure grew, bringing increasing pain for hour upon hour. My shoulder finally gave out, popping out of its socket with an endless, sickening tug. I came to a stop days later, crumpled on the ground, staring at the ceiling. The pain in my shoulder still screaming with the intensity of a fresh, violent injury. I had plenty of time to think during that fall. If every second seemed like days to me, then each minute of real-world time would be like years. Even if the drug cleared out of my system in the next two or three hours, this nightmare would seem to last centuries. By the time I hit the ground, I had a plan. I would somehow get to the platform and throw myself in front of the train. I twisted onto my hands and knees. Days of my dislocated shoulder, crying for relief. I misjudged my rotation and rolled onto my back. I tried again, collapsing onto my face as I tried to figure out how to control a body that moved slower than grass grew. Weeks of effort were finally rewarded with success. I stabilized on my hands and knees. If just getting on all fours was this difficult, I figured that walking or running was completely out of the question. So I crawled. I crawled through the metro tunnel. The dumb looks on the faces in the crowd lingered on me for weeks. I crawled under the turnstile and onto the escalator. The escalator spilled the rush hour crowd onto the platform at the same speed a glacier spills ice into the sea. I looked out over the crowded platform during my interminable downward ride. The train sat aside so the next train wouldn't arrive for 20 minutes. 20 minutes was like a year to me. I'd have to spend a year on the metro platform waiting to die. I crawled off the escalator, enduring days of stupid expressions on the commuters' faces. I crawled a few feet to a concrete bench and curled up next to it, trying to find a position to lessen the pain on my shoulder. 
Then my problem with time got worse. Impossibly worse. The massive slowdown on the stairs was just the beginning of the interaction between the experimental drug and the ambient. It fully hit me while I was curled up by the bench. I blinked. Years of darkness followed. The sound was already gone, and with my blink, sight was as well. All that existed was the pain from my fall. My hyper-accelerated mind wasted no time compensating for the lack of sensory input. Voices spoke to me. They sung to me in languages that never existed. Patterns, faces, and colors came and went in my mind's eye. I recalled my whole life and imagined living another. I forgot English. I settled into a profound despair. I spoke to God. I became God. I imagined a new universe and brought it to life with my thoughts, and then I did it all again and again. My eyes opened with geologic slowness, a faint glow, weeks, a slit of light, weeks, a narrow view of the metro platform, ankles of the commuters near me, and an advertisement on the opposite wall. I extracted my phone from my pocket, a project that spanned decades. How can I even explain the boredom? The pain in my shoulder is nothing compared to the boredom. Every thought I can think I have thought hundreds of times already. The view of ankles and advertisements never change, never. The boredom is so intense it's tangible, like a solid object of metal and stone wedged into my skull. Inescapable. What are my options? If I crawl and fall into the tracks without an oncoming train to crush me, I won't die. I'll experience even more pain from the four-foot fall, but I'll most likely be rescued by some do-gooder on the platform and unable to act when the train finally does arrive. My suffering inside that scenario will be endless. So I wait for the train, so I can throw myself under it. When it finally hits me, I'll experience the pain of being ripped into pieces for centuries until finally the light of life leaves my brain. And my experience ends. I've lived hundreds of lifespans at the foot of this bench. I'm far older in spirit than any human who has ever lived. Most of my life experience has been a snapshot of pain huddled on the floor of a subway platform with an unchanging view of ankles and advertisements. This post is my plan B, my Hail Mary, my long shot. I've spent lifetimes typing and posting this message in the hope that someone will read it and become convinced that my suffering must end. Someone on this plant platform right now. Someone who will find the man curled under the bench. The man who crawled down the escalator and kill him as swiftly as possible. A bullet to the temple. If you're armed and at the Glenmont Metro. Please, shoot me. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I did something stupid. I knew it was stupid too before I did it. And to my credit, I thought that the worst thing that could happen was that I'd die. And I was wrong. It was much worse than that. Kayak camping in Puget Sound isn't dumb at all. If you hire an experienced guide. All the guides that I found, however, were dudes. I needed to spend some time in nature to get over some stuff. With the last thing I needed was another guy falling in love with me. So I went out solo. I thought I was being smart. I bought a bunch of laminated nautical charts. I bought a compass. I watched a good two dozen YouTube videos on sea kayaking. I did sports-specific training. A lot of weights and core and cardio. The one thing I didn't do before I pushed off the beach in Deer Harbor in a tiny boat loaded with gear was any actual sea kayaking. If the weather is good, and you're lucky, not knowing what you're doing in a sea kayak isn't a problem. In fact, when conditions are favorable, you can easily come to believe that you're just naturally good at it. The San Juan Islands are a great place to fool yourself into thinking you're not a dumbass who's going to fucking die in the ocean. First of all, the Puget Sound isn't the open ocean. There are hundreds of islands. Some are so big they have airships and towns. Others are barren piles of rock that are home to nothing birds. In between are hundreds of medium-sized islands. Some with campgrounds. Some with small year-round communities. And some that are marked off-limits on the charts. My plan for if I had trouble on the water was to just head to the nearest big island, land on any random beach, hitch to town, and get drunk in a sports bar. I was prepared. The first two days of my solo kayaking adventure were amazing. Beautiful weather, calm water, and beyond epic campsites on different islands. When I woke up on day three, though, things were different. Gusty wind blew a drizzly mist into the beach. The sound was a mess of white caps and foam. There were a dozen other kayakers at the campground, but I was the only one dumb enough to launch that morning. It'll clear up, I said. It didn't. It's not as bad as it looks out there. It was worse than it looked. I just have to get to Clark Island. It's only three miles away. Those three miles turned out to be an impossible struggle against the tide and the wind. I made virtually no progress, even after a few hours of hard paddling. I should have turned around and headed back to where I started, but I'm kind of thick-headed, and until now, that trait has served me well. Embrace the suck has been my motto, as I've trained for marathons and triathlons. Every time I've hit a wall of exhaustion in training or race, I put my mind into embrace the suck mode, and transform into a combination of Zen Master and Navy SEAL. This works well. On land where if you collapse, you'll just lie on the dirt for a while until you can get up and keep going. I discovered that the attitude didn't work well in the ocean. Not to be corny, but the old-timey phrase is true. The sea is a harsh mistress. Maybe I'm pushing the analogy between the sea and a woman a little too far, but that morning, my mistress, the ocean, fucked me in a bad way. The dense fog settled over the water, and I couldn't see Clark Island or any other land. Going back to where I pushed off in the morning was no longer an option. My contingency plan, land on a big island with a bar, 
wouldn't work either for the same reason. Couldn't see anything out there other than fog. I fished the chart out from under the spray skirt and pulled the compass out of my pocket. I easily found Cork Island on the map, but where was I? The wind and the current pushed me north of the line I wanted to stay on to Clark, but how far north had I drifted? What direction should I go to get myself to Clark or back to where I started? Having a map and a compass isn't really helpful if you can't figure out your own location. I extracted my phone. A quick check on Google Maps would clear things up. Before I pushed off that morning, I put my phone into battery saver mode. Now, out into the rocking waves and the thick fog, I had to mess with the settings to turn the GPS back on. Maybe if I'd been paying attention to my surroundings instead of farting around with the phone settings, I would have heard the container ship approaching. And if I knew it was coming, maybe I would have been ready to handle the waves it created as it passed by. But I was too focused on the phone instead. I screamed when I saw the ship break through the fog right in front of me. The bow wave hit me a moment later. I managed to avoid capsizing, but I dropped my phone to the water. It was gone before I could even try to grab for it. Three hours later, I was still lost in the fog. I was even colder and more deeply exhausted. I stopped paddling and drifted in the wind. I had no idea what direction to go. What was the use in using energy when it was just as likely that I was heading away from land as towards it? I heard the surf crashing on the island before I saw it. I paddled toward the sound, relieved to finally find land. When the dark shape of the island emerged from the fog, I turned around and paddled like mad to get away. There was no beach. Just a massive outcropping of rock that turned the wind-blown swells into a violent splashing catastrophe. I paddled until my shoulders couldn't take it anymore, but the wind was fierce and all my work was for nothing. I made no progress away from the island. The wind blew me toward the rocks and I made another attempt to get away which was as useless as the first. I hit the rocks facing backwards. The boat flipped. I pushed with my legs and popped off the spray skirt. Freed from the boat, I surfaced in a panic and clung to a boulder. With the spray skirt removed, the kayak filled with water when the next wave hit. The wave pushed me further onto the rocks and dragged the flooded kayak into the water. I was pushed underwater by the crashing wave and scrambled like a sock in a washer. I thrashed in an attempt to surface but couldn't figure out which way was up. I slanted my arms into the barnacle-coated rocks. The waver seated and I was momentarily pinned against one of the boulders as the water raced back into the sound. And then all was calm. I stood. The water in the trough of the wave rose only to my knees. My kayak was twenty feet away, flooded and being dragged into the ocean with the outgoing wave. The red plastic boat rose above my head as the next wave smashed into the rocks. I leapt onto a higher rock and grabbed on. The wave crashed onto me, smashing me into the rock. I managed to hang on as the flood drained back out. Then I clawed my way up the bluff. The bluff was 30 or 40 feet high. At the top I found myself at the edge of a small stand of fir trees. I collapsed under the sandy soil. I was bleeding from a dozen bad scrapes on my knuckles, forearms, and knees. I wiped the water off my face. My hand came away bloody. I must have bashed my head on a rock while getting thrown around. I probed my scalp wound and the injuries on my arms and legs. None of them were too serious. No bones were broken and the bleeding was already starting to slow down. I scanned the water, looking for my boat, or any boat, someone who could help me. Neither appeared in small arc of the Puget Sound that I could see through the fog. The fog surrounded me, darkened to a gloomy, impenetrable gray as the sun set. The residual glow of the sun couldn't break through the layer of fog, and it was soon as dark as midnight. No moon, no stars. 
No lights of any kind in the water on the small wedge of the island that I was on. I pulled my arms inside my jacket, wrapped the spray skirt around my legs as a makeshift blanket. I said, embrace the suck, over and over, until I somehow fell asleep. I woke up at dawn. Looking back, it was a miracle I awoke at all, given what lived on that island. But at that moment, I thought that my biggest problem was the fact that I was shipwrecked. I still had no idea what I was really facing. Shipwrecked, I said out loud, just to hear myself say the word. Shipwrecks are things that happen to pirates or merchant marines. I was just a normal person on vacation, not a seafarer or whatever. I checked with my body. My arms and back were destroyed. None of my so-called sports-specific training prepared me for yesterday's furious hours of padding. My abrasions looked bad. Dark blue bruises formed under the damaged skin. I imagined the abrasion on my scalp looked just as awful. Embrace the suck, my thought. I checked my pockets for food. I had a cliff bar and an apple. I swallowed the cliff bar in three bites and saved the apple for later. A layer of fog still hung over the sound, but the sun was able to show through and the sky above was blue. I scanned the small arc of water that I could see through the fog. Nothing. If I was going to improve my situation, I'd have to find help on the island. I entered the forest of fir trees. A quarter mile walk through the forest led me to a grassy field. I plodded across the field, looking for signs of people. A decaying, thoroughly rusted 1930s vintage tractor sat half-buried on the other end of the field. Was that a good or a bad sign? I heard a commotion behind me and spun around. A deer bounded out of the forest on the far side of the field with a look of terror in its eyes. Immediately after the deer entered the field, a dozen horses, also traveling at a top speed, blasted out of the woods. The deer moved with graceful leaps. The horses ran with a thunderous gallop, smashing away branches and the firs of the far edge of the field. I thought that both the horses and the deer must be running from some common terror in the woods, but nothing else came out of the woods. The deer juked to the left and the pack of horses followed. The deer made a sharp right, and the lead horse pounced on it, grabbing onto the deer with its mouth like a lion taking down an antelope. I screamed. The lead horse fought against the struggling deer. The rest of the horses turned and barreled toward me. I screamed again and ran. I sprinted past the ruined tractor and into the woods. The furious gallop of the horses grew closer with each of my pounding heartbeats. I dodged the trees. I ducked under some branches and broke through others. A few branches bent but didn't break, leaving bloody scratches on my face and hands. I didn't dare turn around because that would slow me down, but there was no doubt that the horses were gaining on me. I saw a break in the woods ahead. I flung myself toward it, and I had to catch myself on a tree to stop short. A long, deep ravine interrupted the woods. The horses broke through the trees behind me and chaotically piled into each other to avoid falling into the ravine. One of the horses, a huge black monster, was so intent on catching me it didn't bother stopping. It plowed into me and we both fell into the ravine. I yelled as I fell and so did the horse. It howled with shrill, hollow cry that sounded more like the cry of a wolf than a horse. I dropped about fifteen feet and landed on a long, steep slope of scree. I managed to roll in a semi-controlled way and slid down the pile of gravel and stones on my ass was mostly unhurt at the bottom. Just a few more scratches, scrapes, and bruises to add to my collection. The massive black horse, however, didn't fare as well. It lay at the bottom of the ravine, struggling to get up. It thrashed its head and front legs violently, but its hind legs were motionless. It twisted and thrashed again, and I could see panic and pain in its eyes. It cried again, this time sounding more like an injured horse than a wolf. The sight of a maimed horse was appalling. Even though it tried 
to run me down, I still felt sorry for it. Whatever it was doing with its friends in the field, it didn't deserve to die from internal bleeding at the bottom of a ravine. Okay. Okay. I said, trying to soothe it. It stopped its agonizing flailing and turned its massive head toward me. I didn't know much about horses, but this one was big-boned and beefy. Do all horses look like they've been lifting weights since infancy? I pulled the apple out of my pocket. I could give it a last meal, at least. Here, you want this? The horse quieted and regarded me slightly. I reached out with the apple. The horse lunged at me with an open mouth, aiming not for the apple in my hand, but for my neck. I thrust myself backward, falling on the ground to avoid its bite. Its attack was over in half a second, but that instant was all I needed to see that its mouth was full of teeth like a wolf's or a bear's. It had three-inch-long canines and cruelly curved incisors. I scrambled backwards. The horse snarled. It lifted its lips in a growl again, showing me a mouthful of carnivore's teeth. I stood and backed away further. The horse snarled again, but not at me this time. It was looking at the top of the ravine. The rest of the herd stood at the top, snarling back. I looked back and forth between the black horse and the herd. They exchanged nasty growls for a minute, and the herd backed away from the edge of the ravine and trotted off into the woods. I ate the apple and stared at the maimed horse. It snarled at me again, showing off its carnivore teeth. I finally convinced myself that the horse was permanently down, and I took my eyes off it to study my surroundings. A small stream ran along the bottom of the ravine. Thickets of bushes and small fir trees blocked the view in both directions. Across the stream, the bluff was similar to the one I fell down. A slope of scree topped with fifteen-foot cliff of crumbling earth, protruding roots and rocks. The horse cried again, and I heard the drumbeat of the galloping herd. They were in the ravine. They broke through the bush a moment later. My brain locked up. Should I run? Back away slowly? Make a lot of noise? I ended up doing nothing but stare at them. There were ten horses, maybe more. All of them a dark brown or black, like the one that fell. Also like the one that fell, they were all enormous. Each had huge, well-defined muscles. Behind me, the fallen horse snarled again. The herd answered with their own growls and displays of their predator's teeth. They charged. I'm dead, I thought. I'm going to know what it feels like to be ripped apart by predators. I shut my eyes. The horses ran around me. A few of them brushed against me as they ran by. I opened my eyes. The herd leapt at the downed horse like lions leaping on a wildebeest. The horse howled again and thrashed around for a few moments. The herd tore away flesh and muscle like giant piranhas, and the black horse fell silent and motionless. Its guts spilled out of its torn open body and were crushed under the hoofs of a frenzied herd. A chunk of horse flesh landed in my shoe. My mental logjam finally broke. Fucking run. I sprinted up the slope that I fell down and started to claw my way up the vertical face of dirt and roots. Dust from the bluff fell into my eyes and mouth. I looked down and blinked the dust from my eyes. The horses were already slowing their feeding. One turned from the carcass and looked at me. It snarled and a string of bloody drool slowly fell from its mouth. I turned back to the cliff. I jumped and managed to grab a protruding root. I kicked a foothold in the packed dirt and pulled myself up a foot. I grabbed a protruding stone. As soon as I put my weight on it, it pulled out of the bluff and landed on my face. I let go of the root and fell back into the scree pile. The horse was still looking at me. I turned back to the wall of the dirt and grabbed the root again. I managed to kick another foothold and found a handhold above the root. I gained three feet, twelve to go. 
There was a howl from below. The horse that was interested in me started up the slope. The dirt was loose and the slope was steep. It slid back down, snarling in anger. I grabbed another protruding root. I tested it and it seemed firm. The horse below gave itself a running start and leapt up the slope. This time it had momentum. It struggled its way up the screen. I tried to pull myself up another foot. The root pulled out of the soil and I dropped nearly where I started. The horse lunged at me. I lifted my legs, praying the root wouldn't pull out further. The animal's teeth snapped together an inch below my feet. I responded with a kick that landed solely on its nose. The horse didn't even notice. It jumped at me again, this time grabbing my heel with its teeth. I yanked my foot out of its mouth and it fell away with my shoe and paled on its teeth. That horse left a huge gouge in my heel. Intellectually, I knew I was in pain from the injury, but a billion years of evolution took over and I entered fight-or-flight mode. Pain ceased to exist. Exhaustion ceased to exist. Emotions dissolved. Every neuron in my mind focused on one task. Climb the cliff. Every cell and every cubic millimeter of muscle tissue in my body was fully engaged. I gouged handholds in the packed dirt. I pulled myself up narrow shells of protruding rocks with my fingertips. I lifted my weight with one arm then the other. I flung myself over the lip of the bluff and sprinted away into the woods. By the time I reached the rusted tractor in the field, I was desperately sucking in air. My peripheral went black and I saw spots in the center of my vision. I collapsed onto my hands and knees and hyperventilated. Spots in my vision vanished and my peripheral returned. I took more deep breaths, this time keeping my mouth wide open to make my breathing as silent as possible. If the horses were hunting me, I didn't want to give away my location. I finally noticed the pain from the horse bite in my ankle. I lay on my back and lifted my leg to get a good look at my ankle. Blood flowed from two nasty looking punctures in the heel. I gingerly touched the injury. The pain was confined to my ankle, and to my relief, my Achilles seemed to be okay. I put my leg down and turned my head to the side. Teeth, blood, a wide open animal mouth full of carnivore's teeth was inches away from me. I squirmed away with a start. My heart rate jumped back to the you're about to die levels. It was the deer. What was left of it? The deer's head and about a third of its spinal column sat on the ground where I collapsed. Bones and entrails were scattered about. A hoofed foot lay in tuft of blood-stained grass. I forced myself to look at the dead deer's head. Death had frozen its eyes into the wide expression of terror that it wore when it bounded out of the woods. I tried to ignore its eyes and studied its mouth. I've never looked inside the mouth of a deer. Just as with the horse, though, what I saw was not what I was expecting. The deer's mouth looked like it belonged to a wolf or a bear. It was a carnivore's mouth, a predator's mouth. Huge canines, vicious incisors that meshed in a way optimized for eating meat. Where the hell was I? I looked around for signs of the horses, held my breath and listened. Nothing. I ran to the edge of the field and into the woods. I walked through the woods like a ninja. Carefully, I stepped on the rocks and thick roots, avoiding twigs or anything else that might make noise. I moved stealthily from tree to tree, scanning 360 degrees each time I stopped. I didn't know where I was going or what I was looking for. I just needed information. Where was I? What's the deal with this island? Most importantly, how could I get the hell off it before I was eaten by predatory, carnivorous ungulates? The island was a decent-sized one, or at least a few hundred acres. I stealth-walked through the forest for at least 45 minutes. My horse bit an ankle eventually stopped bleeding, but the pain grew worse and worse as I explored the woods. I stopped to massage my injured left foot. I sat down quietly, carefully adjusted my socks so that a clean-ish part covered the horse tooth punctures. 
I stood and scanned the forest. That's when I realized I was standing on a road. It was a dirt road, so rutted and overgrown that it was almost impossible to see unless you were standing on it. To my left, the road wound through the trees in the general direction of the field with the dead deer. To my right, it went deeper into the forest. I went right. You've got to be kidding me, I said out loud, momentarily forgetting that I was in silent mode. I was talking to myself about a house. A 1940s-era craftsman-style house sat at the end of the road, nestled in the fir forest. Its shingles were gray with age, its gables were sagging, and its front porch was collapsed. Miraculously, its windows were intact, despite advanced decay. I scrambled over to the rotted planks of the porch, being super careful not to step on any of the protruding rusty nails. Pulled myself onto the threshold and looked through the glass at the front door. It was dark inside. I tried the knob. It turned. I pushed the door open. Barely moved. I shoved it harder. The hinges squealed and the door cracked open a few inches. I peered through the crack. I made out a threadbare carpet on a wooden floor. Everything else was lost in the interior gloom. I shoved the door again, creating enough crack to slip through. I stepped up and out of the pit to the collapsed porch and slid inside. The house was a time capsule to the late 1930s. A smelly, moldy, decaying time capsule. Peeling flower-patterned wallpaper in the foyer. A piano with green moss growing on the keys. The skeletons of once-upholstered furniture in the living room. The floor creaked beneath my feet like it was screaming in pain. I left footprints in the thick layer of dust. I found the kitchen. A rusting icebox dominated the room. Broken plates and glasses were scattered on the floor. I didn't know what I was looking for, but I knew I hadn't found it yet. I climbed the stairs to the second floor. The threads were rotten and the upstairs floor was in terrible condition. Decades of drips from the leaking roof had all but dissolved the plaster ceiling and taken a toll on the floor. Two small bedrooms held tiny brass framed beds. Her mattresses and bedding turned into decayed mush. I crept into the master bedroom. The only furniture that had survived decades of abandonment was a larger bed. This too held decayed bedding, but something was different. I walked into the room for a closer look. Someone was in the bed. I ran. I slipped on a slimy part of the floor. I got up and ran again, simultaneously terrorized and super careful to avoid slipping down the stairs. Five minutes later, heart rate basically back to normal. I climbed the stairs and approached the master bedroom again. I peeked in from the doorway. A suspiciously human-shaped lump under the remains of the cover was still there. Hello? There was no response. I slowly walked to the bedroom, shaking. I approached the bed. Yep. It was a skeleton. A human skeleton. I found a for real dead person in an abandoned house. Guess you can check that off my bucket list. I forced myself to look at it. She, or he, was dead. There was no threat, it was just gross. I closed my eyes and imagined myself as a doctor, someone who's seen all parts of people, living and dead, and was no longer phased by anything. I opened my eyes, now in doctor mode. There was no skin or hair or anything else on the skull. Bugs, or maybe just the decades, had stripped all of that away. I'm not in pre-med or anything, but I think I've seen enough fake skulls to know what they're supposed to look like. This one was different. 
Specifically, its teeth were different. I bent over and took a close look at the skull. Its teeth were not normal. The canines were enormous. This person had fangs, basically. The incisors reminded me of the deer in the field. They looked more like curved tools designed to tear raw meat than anything that belonged in a human mouth. What was it with the things on this island and teeth, I wondered? Did everything on this island turn into a meat-devouring carnivore? How could that happen? A virus? Mutations from toxic waste? What happened here? I asked the skeleton. It didn't answer. Then I got an idea. I walked downstairs, carefully stepping on the edge of the stair treads to avoid breaking through the rotten boards. I made my way to the kitchen, using my right foot, the foot still wearing a shoe. I kicked a path through debris of broken plates and glasses from the doorway to the icebox. I grasped the handle of the icebox, took a deep breath, and yanked it open. The ancient, corroded hinges gave a piercing, dissonant squeal. A pile of bones spilled out of the icebox, bouncing off my legs and clattering onto the floor. I jumped back, slipped on the slimy kitchen floor, and landed on my ass. The human skull rolled out of the icebox, down the pile of bones, and into my lap. I clenched my eyes shut and took a few deep breaths. I needed to somehow avoid freaking out. I opened my eyes. The skull was still on my lap, a human skull. Rather, another human skull that also happened to have disturbingly oversized canines and incisors. I gently kicked the pile of bones that spilled out of the icebox. I'm not an atomist, but... I'm not an anatomist, but they sure looked like they could be resembled into a human skeleton. At least one skeleton. I picked up one of the larger bones, a femur, maybe. It had bite marks up and down the length of it. I carried the bone back upstairs to the bedroom and walked right up to the skeleton in the bed. I carefully opened the jaws of its skull and put the femur into its mouth. The bite marks on one of the bones matched up perfectly with the other size teeth and skull. This can only mean... What? I had the sensation of being 99% of the way to figuring something out, but I didn't really totally get it yet. Animals and people, mammals, on this island grew the teeth of carnivores. Horses hunted and ate deer and other horses... At some point in the past, humans ate other humans. The island was populated by crazed meat-eating predators, or something on this island changed ordinary mammals into meat-eating predators. I was stranded on Carnivore Island. Whether carnivorous forms of ordinary mammals were somehow placed here, or some pathogen on the island made everyone grow teeth and an appetite for flesh, my course of action was the same. I have to get the fuck off this island. I walked to the window, leaving footprints in the quarter inch of nearly liquefied, rotting wood of the floor. From the second story, I had a better view of the forest than from ground level, but I still saw nothing but fir trees. I went to one of the other bedrooms, whose window was on the opposite side of the house. Here, the view was different. The forest ended a hundred feet or so from the house. A strip of grass separated the trees from a rocky slope that led to a small beach. I had access to the sound. Now I just needed a way to get across the sound to the mainland. Or at least to another island that was populated with care bears and chocolate bunnies or something other than quarter-ton predators. The visibility had improved from the morning. The fog was lifting and I could see pretty far out to the sound. I scanned the distance, looking for something, anything, and I finally saw it. The dark stripe of distant land through the fog. How far was it? Three miles? Five miles? I'm in pretty good shape, really good shape, actually. 
completed an Ironman last year. Could I swim there? Swimming off Carnivore Island was a really dumb idea. I was exhausted. I had multiple injuries. I hadn't eaten properly in about a day. I was dehydrated, and I could easily die in the sound, but... Those horses. That herd of predatory horses that held a grudge against me. When I heard myself say, fuck it, I knew I'd made a decision. I crept downstairs. I slipped out the front door and ran into the woods. No longer in ninja mode, I ran through the woods, down the rocky hill, into the beach. Standing next to the water, my idea of swimming to safety seemed even worse. It was cold. I couldn't see distant land from sea level. I can't do this, I thought. Galloping. The herd of horses was on the damn beach. Not just on the beach, but galloping toward me through the surf. Majestic. Beautiful. Frankly, it was a pretty good scene for the last thing I'll ever see. I spent two seconds thinking about which was worse. Drowning or getting torn apart by animals. I pictured myself drowning in the ocean, sliding under the waves and spending my last two minutes underwater with horrible pain in my lungs. And I pictured myself getting ripped apart by the herd. Maybe it's not that bad, I thought, to be killed and eaten. Maybe if you get torn apart fast enough, your nerves can't even signal the brain that there's pain. Maybe. The lead horse opened its mouth. Even from the other side of the beach, I could see the white prongs of its teeth. I sighed. I chose drowning. See ya, I shouted, then ran into the surf. The water was much colder than I had been expecting. I swam through the waves away from the beach. I didn't have to go far before I couldn't touch the bottom. Treading water, I turned back to the island. I didn't see the horses on the beach. A wave lifted me a few feet and I saw them. In the water, swimming toward me. Oh, that is not fair, I shouted at nobody. I turned and swam like crazy. A minute later, I risked stopping for a moment to check behind me. I saw nothing. Did I lose them? Were they swimming underwater like sharks or orcas? I started swimming again. I never made it to the distant land. I swam for at least 45 minutes. My energy was gone. At that point, all land, even Carnivore Island, was still impossibly far away. I'd fatally misjudged the distance and my own swimming abilities. Embrace the suck. I kept swimming. Another five minutes. Embrace the suck. Five more minutes. I heard a voice. Someone was laughing. I screamed for help. I used the last few calories of energy in my body to splash around, and then I saw the source of the voice. A sailboat. They saw me and pulled me out of the water just as I was slipping under. I spent a day in the hospital. They warmed me up and treated my injuries in hypothermia and dehydration. Was I super lucky to have been rescued? Frankly, I'm not sure. I've been barfing a lot lately. Most of my usual favorite fruits, beans, salads, veggie burgers, didn't sit well with me anymore. The only thing I can keep down is meat. Burgers, steak... Rare steak is especially good. My jaw hurts too. My teeth are sore and loose. This morning my left lower canine fell out. I was eating a sausage for breakfast and my tooth just kind of popped out when I took a bite. I felt a little bump in the hole it left. I rinsed the blood off my mouth and studied it in the mirror. The tip of a new tooth poked through my gums. It looked sharp. I can't fool myself anymore. I'm growing a brand new set of predator teeth. It's obvious that I brought back the carnivore disease from the island. My infectious. Even if I'm not, will I start eating people like Mr. or Mrs. Dead Person in the bed on the island? I should have died attempting to swim back. I don't mean should have, as in I was lucky to be rescued. I mean, it would have been better for the world if I died and sank to the bottom of the ocean. I could try.
get medical help. But I'm afraid that it will take so long to find a doctor who will actually believe me and pay attention to my problem that I'll turn full cannibal and hurt someone before I get help. And what can they do, really? People with unique medical conditions are rarely cured. So I rented another kayak. I'm going to load it up with camping gear and head back into the sound. I'm going back to the island to self-isolate. My goal is to claw my way to the top of the food chain there and live off the meat from deer and horses. Yes, it's a stupid idea, but it's no worse than my original idea to solo kayak camp. And this time I know that the worst thing that can happen is that I'll die. At least I won't take anyone down with me. Embrace the suck. <laughs>